0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. As Ethel and her husband Joe got to her mother's apartment, they were surprised to see her father standing outside. He explained that he'd been knocking, but no one was answering the door. Since he'd been separated from Ethel's mother, he didn't have a key. Her mother and sister lived in a fourth-floor walk-up that held three small bedrooms, one of which was rented out to a boarder. Ethel's father had moved out after the separation four years earlier. They'd remained friends, and the whole family got together for holidays, like this Easter Sunday. It was odd that neither her mother nor her sister were answering. She figured that maybe her younger sister had been out late the night before, which she frequently was, and was sleeping in, but her mother was expecting them. As they stood outside waiting, another tenant in the building emerged, gaining them entrance inside. Ethel's new Easter shoes were hurting her feet, so her father went up the four flights to the apartment. To his surprise, Joseph found the front door unlocked. As he walked inside, he was met by his daughter's dog, Little Pekingese named Tucci. Other than the dog, no one was around. On the kitchen counter, he saw all the ingredients laid out for Easter dinner. Slowly, he pushed the door open to the bedroom, and he recoiled in horror. There on the bed lay his daughter, naked and obviously dead. Dark bruises covered her neck. Hers would be the first of three bodies found in the apartment. But because of the young dead girl's notoriety, she would become the focus of the media. This week, I'll talk about the murder of pin-up model Veronica So I found some great articles by David Krajek on the daily news, used a lot of Murderpedia, Wikipedia, and a couple of blogs, Ephemeral New York, WordPress.com, and The Penny Dreadfuls. There's also really good episodes of Mysteries at the Museum and A Crime to Remember that cover this case. But my main source of research was the brilliant book by Harold Schechter called The Mad Sculptor. So when detectives arrived at the apartment at 316 East 50th Street, They were greeted by a man rushing towards them, speaking a mix of English and Hungarian. That was Joseph Gedeon. What should have been a peaceful Easter in 1937 had quickly turned into a nightmare. Joseph informed them that he just found his youngest daughter, 20-year-old Veronica, dead in her room, and that his ex-wife was missing. Police began to search the apartment. It wasn't long before they found another body. That of bartender Frank Burns. So after the separation, Mary Gideon had started taking in boarders. And Frank, who hailed from London, was currently renting a room. He was found in his bed, stabbed in the head and neck with a sharp object. So that was two bodies and still no sign of Mary Gideon. Then, Detective William Gilmartin who was examining the crime scene in the bedroom, noticed something sticking out from under the bed. Ethel and Joseph's worst fears came to reality. It was the body of 54-year-old Mary, and she was also dead, strangled like her daughter. The force was so brutal that her thyroid cartilage was torn. Her bruised knuckles showed that she'd fought her attacker. Although she was dressed, her underwear was down around her ankles. So the police had three dead bodies, and no idea what had occurred in the home. The task was now to find out who might have been the intended target and why. Since their border, Frank, had recently moved in, the police focused on the women. There was no signs of forced entry, so either the door was left unlocked or the killer was known to someone in the home at Beekman Place. So the first suspect was, of course, Joseph, since he and Mary had separated. So police initially found a pistol in his upholstery shop, and that was enough to charge him with gun possession and arrest him. He was also oddly unemotional after all the bodies were recovered. I mean, yeah, everyone reacts differently to trauma, but this seemed really strange to the investigators. They were able to form a rough timeline of the events of the night. By examining the contents of Mary's stomach, they surmised that she'd been killed between 10 p.m. and midnight. A neighbor heard loud thumps coming from the apartment around 11, which backed this whole thing up. Veronica, or Ronnie as she was known, had returned home from a date late around 2 or 3 a.m., so they guessed that Mary was killed first, then the English boarder Frank with 11 stab wounds to the head, and then Veronica. But still, who was the intended victim and why? Upon examining the apartment, detectives found a brand new gray suede glove without its mate. And this was in the English boarder's room. And another odd finding was a torn pair of women's underwear that was wedged between the wall and the headboard of Ronnie's bed. And in the bathtub, they found a towel stained with blood but nothing of value seemed to be taken, ruling out robbery. And despite the pair of underwear found behind Ronnie's headboard and her mother's state of undress, the autopsies also revealed that neither woman had been sexually assaulted. Ethel did notice one odd thing. Her sister's bedside clock was missing. She thought it was odd because it's not valuable. What was even weirder was a strange soap sculpture that was found by the bed. It seemed to be a figure with the head of a woman and the body of a snake. Joseph recalled almost having stepped on it when he entered the room, and Ethel said she had never seen it before. So was this left behind by the intruder? Police canvassed the building, speaking to all the tenants. As much as the little dog Tucci barked at everyone coming and going from the crime scene, detectives were surprised to find out that no one heard the dog barking the night of the murders. One tenant did remember hearing what he thought was a scream and possibly a scuffle, but after not hearing any more noise, he just went back to bed. After establishing the timeline, police had to rule out Joseph Gedeon as their prime suspect. He'd been in his own home above a shop at the time of the murders, and this was witnessed by a few different people. Police decided the intended victim had to be Veronica Gedeon. See, Ronnie was a pinup model and drew a lot of attention. Nowadays, a pinup is a very desirable thing, it can catapult beautiful women like Dita Von Teese to stardom, but in Veronica Gedeon's time, it was very taboo. Pin-ups were originally used in informal display, meant to be pinned up on a wall, hence the phrase pin-up. So the history of pin-ups began in the theater world, where images of attractive women would be placed on business cards to advertise shows. In the World Wars, images of pinups were painted on planes to soldiers' delight. In Veronica's time, pinups posed salaciously for covers of magazines like Real Detective, True Detective, and others. So the woman in the picture would be on the precipice of danger at the hands of a murderer or rapist. There were flashy headlines across the page. The job of pinup model was frowned upon by general society. As you can imagine, the women who were models were seen as having loose morals even though that was often not the case. I mean, take famous pen-up Betty Page. Betty was devoutly religious. And Veronica was also a good girl. The source of her income was a hotly debated topic between her parents, though. Joseph disapproved of how Mary was raising her daughters, especially Ronnie's occupation. In fact, Joseph cites Mary's upbringing of the girls as one of the causes of the end of their marriage. Ronnie had gotten her start as a model thanks to her sister, Ethel. Ethel at the time worked at Vanity Fair magazine, and she introduced her sister to her boss, Helen Norton, at a party. Norden then introduced Ronnie to Condé Nast, who was an actual person and not just a magazine that I found out. So Condé Nast had her model for his daughter, who was an artist. And from there, Ronnie got to work as a figure model for artists and photographers, and that led to steady jobs as a pinup for the pulp magazines. As soon as word of Ronnie's life as a pinup hit the media, this was front-page news. And of course, the newspapers dug up the most provocative pictures of the attractive dead girl that they could find. The major attention by the press did put added pressure on the police to find the murderer of these three innocent people. So with the focus on Ronnie, Detective Martin Owens found two items that might provide clues, Ronnie's black address book and her five-year diary. Both were turned over to Chief Deputy Inspector Francis Keir. As expected, the address book contained names of many men. Ronnie was a much sought-after young lady. The vivacious blonde was very beautiful, and she had many suitors. Upon closer examination of the diary, Keir zeroed in on someone she referred to as B., one entry noted how afraid she was of B. So the search on was to find the identity of this mystery man. Coincidentally, while Keir was going over the diary, the phone rang at the apartment. So police answered, and the caller asked to speak to Ronnie. The officer asked who the caller was, and he replied, Stephen Butter. So could he be the mysterious Bee? Minutes later, detectives were at Stephen Butter's apartment, where they led him down to the precinct for further questioning. The 23-year-old worked as a messenger for a Wall Street brokerage, and unfortunately for detectives, he was everything but a killer. The young man lived with his parents, had a good job, and he wasn't even Ronnie's boyfriend. That night, he was taking her out as a favor for his friend, Lincoln Hauser, who was actually dating Ronnie. Lincoln was away for the weekend and he asked his friend to keep an eye on her. Stephen had planned a night out in the town with Ronnie, her friend Jean, and his buddy Frank. When Jean came down sick, the three went out ahead for the night. After dinner and drinks, Frank went home around 2 a.m. because he was taking his mother to Mass in the morning. So Stephen and Ronnie had a few more drinks at another club before he walked her home around 3 a.m. He walked her right to the front door and said good night with plans to accompany her to mass the next morning. But the next morning came with no answer to Stephen's call at the buzzer. And that's when he telephoned and detectives answered. Butler didn't even know that Veronica was dead. So they officially ruled him out as a suspect. This led them to the next B in her life, ex-husband Robert Bobby Flower. Selling a little
1: or a lot? For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
0: Bobby and Ronnie had married when they were very young. In fact, after the marriage went sour, Ronnie sued for annulment since she was actually a minor at the time of their marriage. Flower just chalked up the demise of the marriage to them both being young and just not right for each other. They had actually stayed friends, and he was very visibly distraught about her death. So, they had to rule out Flower as a suspect. This led detectives back to square one. Their next step was to confirm the alibi of Ronnie's current boyfriend and friend of Stephen Butter, Lincoln Hauser. And also to speak to her friend, Jean Carp, who was supposed to be with Ronnie that night. Alarmingly, they found out that Jean had intended to spend the night with Veronica until she came down sick. This barely made her escape being victim number four. Hauser's alibi of vacationing in Saratoga Springs was confirmed, and he was ruled out as a suspect. At a stalemate, detectives worked on forming an exact timeline of events after gathering all their evidence. The border Frank Burns had come home directly after work and went to bed. He was the first victim. The killer had attacked Mary when she returned home, where she was attacked, murdered, and a body pushed under the bed. The killer then lay in wait for Veronica. Ronnie came into the bedroom, undressed, and was attacked in the living room. After she was strangled, the killer dragged her body back to the bedroom, where he placed her upon the bed. Meanwhile, the press had a field day with speculation over what happened at Beekman Place that Easter weekend. Headlines declared that a sex fiend was on the loose, ready to strike again. To sell papers, the headlines remained focused on all the salacious details of Ronnie's life. Lincoln Hauser gave the tabloids juicy and possibly embellished details of their relationship while the press went wild with the stories police were still no closer to finding their killer they went back to Ronnie's diary to try to find more clues they were still stuck on this mention of her being afraid of B she spoke of this person as being obsessed with her sister Ethel to the point of stalking her. She even referred to this person as Bobby. Finally, they realized that this was someone other than Butters or her ex, Bobby Flowers. This was a new suspect. So to find out who this man was, they went to talk to Ronnie's sister, Ethel. Who was this man obsessed with her? Now, Ethel was flabbergasted, insisting that the man that they were speaking of could never have done this. He was a kind, talented artist. His name was Robert Irwin. So who was he? Investigators found that Bob Irwin led a very tortured life. His father, Benjamin Irwin, had led a life of drinking and abuse towards his family. This was until he became a religious fanatic. Being so influenced by his new life, he became a revivalist preacher, traveling the country in revival tents. So he remarried and fathered more children, one of which was Fenelon, or Robert, as he became to be known. Not long after his birth, Mary, his mother, would come to find out that her devoutly religious husband was actually a lying bigamist, having never divorced his first wife. Benjamin then deserted Mary and her children, leaving her to work a variety of menial jobs just to keep the family afloat. Now, Benjamin would pop in and out of Robert's life, once even taking his young son to a brothel. Due, perhaps, to the lack of proper parenting, Robert's brothers began hanging out with a very bad crew, often getting arrested. But Robert stayed close to his mother. Unfortunately, he began to have very violent outbursts, often directed at Mary. Less than a week before his 12th birthday, she filed a court petition saying she could no longer deal with him. He was then sent to a juvenile facility. While there, a routine blood test revealed that the young boy had syphilis, as did all his brothers. Authorities figured that they were infected By their father, who was a womanizer and frequented brothels, and then subsequently infected by their mother. So upon his release from the facility, he was back with his mother and younger brother. In the following years, Robert began his love of the arts by drawing and then clay sculpting. But his ever-present temper continued to plague him resulting in more reform schools. After the death of his father, Robert packed a bag and got away from his troubled mother, never seeing her again. From there, Robert continued to be a sculptor. He worked under renowned sculptors of the time, like Carlo Romanelli and later Laredo Taft. And for a while, he led a normal life, even getting engaged to a young lady named Alice Ryan, whom he met in Chicago. Not long after, Irwin left for New York City to make it there as a sculptor. And that relationship ended. He continued to suffer emotional and physical outbursts as well as a very deteriorating mental state. He had such violent fantasies and thoughts of suicide that he committed himself to the Kings County Hospital. So after that, to make ends meet, Bob Irwin often stayed at boarding houses. And this was pretty common for that day. That was how he came to encounter the Gedeons. His friend Chuck Smith was a boarder with the family and suggested them to his friend, In October of 1932, Bob moved into Chuck Smith's old room, but less than a week after he moved in, plagued by his fantasies and living with women, he made a drastic move. Inside the bathroom, he attempted to slice off his penis. Now, I won't get into details, but I will say that the pain was too much and he couldn't finish the job. He was taken to Bellevue Hospital where he stayed for five months. And from there, he went to Rockland State Hospital in upstate New York. His violent tendencies seemed to increase, getting him lots of time and restraints. After his release, he once again found a place at the Gedeons and got close to Ethel. They started talking one day when he came out to pay his rent. She was very intrigued by his artwork. and Conversations led to days together at the museum, and eventually Ethel sat as a model for a bust that Bob made of her. And during this time, he became convinced that she was his soulmate. But this bothered Veronica as well as her mother, Mary. And Mary eventually took the young man aside to try to deter him. But nothing worked. And this was until Bob proposed to Ethel, who had to let him know that she was engaged to a guy named Joe Cudner. He became so despondent over the rejection that once again, he committed himself to Rockland Hospital, where he stayed for two years. While there, he made a sculpture which would be eerily similar to the one found at the Gedeon Home. It had the head of Ethel and the body of a snake. Police knew that Robert Irwin must be the man that they were looking for. The sculpture was too like the one found at the scene of the crime, but Bob Irwin was nowhere to be found. And that's when Ronnie's friends at one of the pulp magazines, Inside Detective, decided to help find her killer. They published a story about her murder with a picture of Bob Irwin. So there was a maid at the Cleveland Staler Hotel named Henrietta that noticed the striking resemblance between the picture in the magazine and the new bar boy who had just been hired. When she inquired about his real last name, he became suspicious and fled. When it seemed like Robert Irwin would never be found, he contacted two Chicago newspapers offering to surrender if they gave him $5,000 to publish his story. Now, the Chicago Tribune simply thought this was a prank. But Harry Romanoff, city editor of the Herald and the Examiner, took the offer seriously. Romanoff sent reporter Austin Malley to the meetup spot. It was the Fountain of the Great Lakes by Laredo Taft. Standing there, he saw Bob Irwin. The two men then went to the office of editor John Dinehart, where Bob signed a contract agreeing to a signed confession for the exclusive publishing rights. From there, they took him to a hotel room where he gave them all the details of his crime. He said his intention that night was to kill only Ethel, He figured after her murder, he would be caught and sent to the electric chair or back to state hospital. Armed with an ice pick, he got to the apartment building around 9 p.m. No one answered the buzzer, so he just waited. And then he saw Mary Gedeon coming home. And being the courteous woman that she was, she invited him upstairs. She was so exhausted from her day, she asked Bob if he would take Tucci out for his nightly walk, to which he agreed. And when he returned, he sat at the table with Mary, just talking. He was surprised to find out that Ethel was no longer living there, but she'd moved out when she married Joe Cudner. Still, he stayed at the apartment. He was sitting there at the table when Frank Burns came home. The men shook hands and talked for a moment before Frank retired to his room. Finally, Mary had had her fill of Robert Irwin. She said she was really tired and she needed to go to bed. However, Bob declared he wasn't leaving until he saw Ethel. Mary insisted he leave or she was going to go get Frank to throw him out. And that's when Bob lost it and grabbed Mary by the neck. And as much as she scratched and clawed at him, he never let go until her body slumped to the floor. And he took her body and placed it under the bed. For some reason, in his delusional mind, he still thought Ethel was going to come home. So he stayed and waited for her. And while he waited, he made the odd sculpture of Ethel out of soap. Then around 3 a.m., he heard Ronnie come home. When she finally emerged from the bathroom, he hit her on the head with the soap, thinking it would stun her, but it didn't have any effect, so he grabbed her by the throat. He said for hours he kept his hands around her throat, until he finally heard her whisper in a weak voice, "'Bob, I know it's you.'" See, he never wanted to kill Ronnie, or even hurt her, because they had always gotten along. He said, "'She was beautiful, and I hate to destroy beauty.'" When he heard Ronnie utter his name, he forcibly choked her until he felt the life leave her body. Then he went into Frank's room and, quote, fixed the Englishman. Before he left, he swiped the clock beside the bedside. Robert Irwin expressed sadness at having killed the three that night. He said he only wanted to kill Ethel. After his confession, a surrender to police was arranged. The whole thing was very bizarre. It seemed like Bob Irwin put on a show, joking and smiling at everyone at the station who came out to see the mad sculptor's arrest. When asked why he stole the bedside clock, he said it was because as he strangled Ronnie... Its dial looked like two green eyes that fascinated him. Back in New York, Irwin was represented at his trial by famed lawyer Samuel Leibowitz, And surprisingly, the state did not find him mentally ill, so he would be tried on regular murder charges. Leibowitz disagreed, saying his client was crazy as a bedbug. Shortly after the jury was chosen, Irwin shocked everyone by pleading guilty to avoid the death penalty. He was sentenced to 139 years to life in prison. Later, he was sent to the infamous Sing Sing prison where he was mentally evaluated and finally found very definitely insane. Robert Irwin passed away in 1975 at the Madawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Fishkill, New York. He was 67 and died after a long struggle with cancer. Years later, this case would still be in the news. In 1948, famed writer Raymond Chandler wrote an article for Cosmopolitan magazine entitled The Ten Greatest Crimes of the Century. And coming in at number three was The Mad Sculptor Robert Irwin. That was the murder of Veronica Gedeon. I highly recommend reading The Mad Sculptor by Harold Schechter. He goes very in-depth into his research on the case. And I also, of course, loved A Crime to Remember, which did an episode of that. Thanks for tuning in. Sorry about my long absence. I decided to take most of the summer off. I ended up starting a new position at my job, went to Mexico, so the time off was much needed. But I'm very happy to be back bringing you stories of true crime. Please send any suggestions to redrumblonde at gmail.com or find me on social media. Join the Red Rumblon Facebook group or find me on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.